good morning. The goal, the goal for today is to get where we were supposed to get yes last time. So if we can get to chapter 7 today, like up to chapter 7, not even in chapter 7, up to chapter 7, i.e. finish chapter 5 and 6, we are, I don't know if we're in good shape, but we're, in sh- we're, we're where we are, so that's, that is good. Um, yeah, and we can begin these things. No matter what, I think we'll be in such close range now that I'm talking about logistics. You need to have SPP number 6, is it? Yes. And you know what? Yeah, let's not, let's just wait. And... And let's cancel six. And then if you, does has anyone done six already? Okay, here's what we'll do. Remember what we did for three and four? It was either or, right? We'll do six and seven, either or. So you, no, no matter what, you reduce your workload. Does that make sense to everybody? And here's what I want everyone to do. Upload six or seven into number seven, SPP number seven. Does that make sense to everybody? Upload six or seven into SPP number seven. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. Yeah, just re-upload it because I won't download SPP six. So six or seven into SPP number seven. Does that make sense to everybody? So. And that's for no. That's for by a week from today, Tuesday. Okay. A week from today. So th- that's what we're doing. So I, I kind of give you a break, but I guess I kind of don't, because that's right before outreach week, I realize. Was there a question? No, everyone's okay? <laughs> so, good. Well, another thing to note. Oh, wait, say it again. A week from today, yes, on Tuesday. Yep. Um, told my minor profits class the same thing, but... Be thinking of topics for if you're doing the wiki wiki project. Some of you already have, and they're locked in, and that's great. That's fine. No worries. Uh, But if you haven't thought of one, I would encourage you to do so before the proposal deadline, just so that we can work through how to go about. If there's any, you know, thing that you need to know about or any resources I want you to consult. And for those of you who have researched or have proposals or topics, rather not proposals. Um, make sure you start to research those things and get an outline and resources together. You don't want to pull this together at the last minute, otherwise you start at a tremendously disadvantaged position. Okay? So just keep that in mind. All right. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, and we will resume Chapter 5 of Second Samuel. Lord, thank you for this time of studying your word and What a privilege, God. We are not capable, able, mighty, spiritual giants in and of ourselves, but uh, we are just those who seek to know your word and to know you through it. And thank you for allowing us through the Holy Spirit to really grapple with the text and to see what it's saying and to see the beauty. And help us never to tire (coughs) of studying of these things that, especially in 2 Samuel, so directly contribute to the background of who your son is and what he came to do and his mission and his job description and how all of that honors him as the climactic king. Help us never to grow weary of that. 
Help us to always have our hearts turned toward that and to see your glory and to your purpose and to understand your sovereignty and your lordship over our lives and over the life of David and your plan. So give us the strength today even to connect the big things with the small things and to not just uh, look at the forest, but also look at the trees as we study your word. Give these fellow believers here strength and encouragement and edification now. May we be blessed as we partake in um, savoring the text. So we depend on you now, Lord. May your Holy Spirit allow us and facilitate us to make this time one that honors you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So we are in 2 Samuel 5, and there is some kind of, there's so much detail that occurs with even the city of Jerusalem. If you remember our last conversation about it, we listed all these things on the board, Melchizedek, conquest motif, military stuff. Um, You have the political unification of the nation. You have um, the spiritual motif of Ab- or theological promise motif of Abraham, and he sacrifices in the region of Moriah, where actually the temple is going to be temple proper is going to be constructed. All of these things start to converge, and David conquers this city. And so, my fear leaving the class last time is you just saw all these different things that Jerusalem is, and really that's just the tip of the iceberg. It really is. There's so much more that could be said. And, and all you know is all those things, and you can't necessarily put it together. I mean, there's politics, unification, military, personal, uh, theological, everything that is going into this. And in the end, what Jerusalem signifies is it is a massive breakthrough. I think that's what you have to understand. It's a massive breakthrough. <coughs> that because David conquers the city that could not be conquered in the conquest, and because David has this city as opposed to Saul's city of Gibeah, which is known for gross immorality, David is the real king. But on top of that, um, David as opposed to Saul's line, which in the end is what? What do we learn in 2 Samuel 4? What are, what are they? They are cursed. David's line is the line that provides hope. And that's how you have to view Jerusalem. It is the, it is the place that provides hope. And David's conquest over Jerusalem is the provision of hope. And let's just put it this way. Um, For Israel, who's struggling to see in the... Israel can't conquer the land. That's their problem. That's why they have all these troubles. That's why the period of the judges arises. And their consistent need for a king is because they want somebody, a strong leader, to come in and bring victory to them, to get them out of a dark age, also known as the period of the judges. And Saul couldn't do it. Saul, I mean, Saul had a purpose, and if you look at him from a historical standpoint, he does kind of do border control, I guess you could say. He tries to maintain status quo as opposed to losing territory. Doesn't always do the greatest job. But for the first time ever since Joshua, you win territory. 
you actually win real territory. You don't just reconquer what you lost in the original conquest. You actually make a gain. Does that make sense? And Israel is just thinking, okay, Saul's line, we saw what happened to them. You follow them, you're cursed. David's line is the winner. Does that make sense to everybody? Because he actually, for the first time in Israel's history, for say 300 years, has had a victory. Does that make sense? Joshua's conquest was in 1400 BC. David is like 1000, 1000. So you're dealing with about three to 400 years. Give or take a little bit on how you want to do David's chronology and how you want to do uh, some, some issues in the judges. But at least 300 years, if not 400. Does that make sense to everybody? For the first time. Uh, how old is the United States? 1776, right? That's our founding date, yes? No? 75. Okay. Sounds good to me. 1775? Okay. All right, that sounds good to me. 1782? 300? Okay. Well, you know what? If you add 300 to 1775 or 76 or 82, the United States is not what? We're not even 300 years yet. You know, the entire existence of the United States is that one period of time of Israel's history. Actually, our entire existence from 17-whatever to now is not, doesn't, we, we're not even out of the dark age yet. Does that make sense? And it would be like this entire time you're living in misery because there's no victory and you're constantly oppressed by other nations. And for the first time, in 300 years, 400 maybe, longer than this country has been around, you have your first victory. That's big. Does that make sense to everybody, what kind of breakthrough this is? This is massive for Israel. It provides hope. David is the shepherd, and he'll bring you home. He'll make this your home. Does that make sense to everybody? He's going to end your wanderings. He's going to end... Remember, what did I tell you before? The Exodus doesn't end till what? 1 Kings chapter 6. Remember that? The Exodus does not end until 1 Kings chapter 6. Israel's been wandering even after the conquest period, theologically speaking. There is no, there is no stability until the time of Solomon. But what this gives is the ray of hope that Israel's instability is going to end. Okay. And let's tie that even bigger and better back to Genesis 3.15 and following. And maybe you could just draw it kind of like this. Genesis 3.15 discusses the world's hope. And if you remember my discussion in that, this is the world's hope of not just personal salvation. Is that included? Yeah, that's implied. But what? That God will have victory over the serpent. God will have victory over the serpent. Remember that. It's not that man is saved. It's that God says, through man, your head serpent will be what? Crushed. 
It's not saying that man's going to be saved. Is that implied? Sure. Because if you conquer, if you destroy the person who's, bo- who's bound, for lack of a better term, man, yeah, then you're going to liberate man. That's true. But that's an implication. That's not the main thing. The main thing is God's victory over the serpent. That's the hope. God has victory. Well, zoom forward, and we know that Israel is supposed to be the bearer, the nation that brings forth that victory. Somehow, some way, God promises them that they'll be a great nation and, they, and all the nations will be blessed in them. Does this make sense? But the problem is, is that when they are situated in a land that they're supposed to use to be that blessing and to be that great nation, they never fulfill it. Do you see this? That's the problem. And so for the first time, Israel's hope starts to link with the world's hope, and both those things are linked now with David. Because if Israel, think domino effect here, is supposed to bring the world's hope, but they don't have hope, and David provides Israel's hope, then David provides Israel's hope, who provides what? World's hope. Do you see how this all cascades one on top of the other? And where does that hope reside? In David's conquest of Jerusalem. And fast forward many years from now, and you see why that plays out the way it does, right? This is the bringing of hope. And the strategy that God has through all his providential workings in history up to this point is to show, I'm going to establish a line of kings. It will be so clear what they are supposed to be and what their potential will be that you will know. These are the ones who bring hope. This is the first step in that. Does this make sense, everybody? All right, by the way, um, this is why crucifixion takes place outside of Jerusalem and also why Matthew, in Matthew 21, says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he heals who? Anyone remember? The lame and the blind. It's the only time, actually, in the Gospels that lame and blind appear, uh, how to put it, autonomously, in the sense of not like lame, blind, uh, sick, demon-possessed. Does that make sense, everybody? Just lame and blind by itself. Are you with me? Why? Because it's showing way, 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 way later, Jesus is doing a what? A new conquest of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Jesus is doing a new conquest of Jerusalem. David made it so that the lame and blind would not enter. So did Jesus. It's just that David did it by what? Military conquest. And Jesus does it by what? Healing everyone. So there's no lame and blind to enter. Because there's no lame and blind. You get, the, you get the same thing, but just two different ways. Does this make sense to everybody? Jesus captures the most controversial city on the planet one of the ones that causes the most trouble for Rome and the one that will attract world attention from past history to future. He conquers it. Why? Because that means the world's hope, which is Israel's hope, which is tied to David, which is tied to Jerusalem, is now tied to Jesus. Yeah? Who had possession of Jerusalem before Jesus reconquested it? Two, well actually it's one answer, but two parts. Uh, Rome technically has control over it via the religious leaders. Cross-reference, John <coughs> chapter 11. Okay? Cross-reference, John chapter 11. 
the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, is terrified that if Jesus starts an insurrection, they will lose their place and their nation. So, the Sanhedrin is a political entity that controls uh, controls Jerusalem from the Roman authority that's over them. It's a distributed authority, delegated authority. So, yeah, that's why the Sadducees aren't sad. Okay, it's a total lie. They're rich. The Romans are paying them off. Lots and lots of money. Okay, you go to Israel, and you go to you go to one of those guys' house. I wish I had a house like that. In California, it costs like twenty million dollars. Okay, I mean they have swimming pools in their house. They they're known as uh, mikvaot, uh, ritual baths, but they're huge. And they got like four or five of them. Okay, that's a lot of money because you also have to pay servants to carry in the water. And not only carry in the water, but keep the water flowing. Do you understand what that means? The water can never stay stagnant. Every, so every like 10 to 15 to 30 minutes, they've got to pour in a new batch of water to keep the water moving. Otherwise, it's no longer impure. That's what they paid people to do all the time. That would be the most boring job ever. But if you're rich, you can afford to do that. Does that make sense to everybody? These, these buildings are big. Go to Israel, look at it for yourself. Um, what's the place called? I forgot. Uh, oh, I forgot its English name. Um, the, what is it called? Herod's Quarter. I think that's what, I think that might be what it's called. Herod's Quarter. Something like that. But we just usually call it, you know, Wool Museum. But that doesn't help anybody. But Herod's Quarter is sometimes what it's called. All right. This is big. This is hope, um, and it has massive future impact. And because of this, because David conquers that one city, <coughs> the rest of everything falls into place. David becomes greater and greater, verse 10 of chapter 5. Everyone see that? This is a divine declaration, because the Lord, the Lord God of hosts was with him. The narrator gives an official declaration that David is king because he has established, remember, what I call the PDC, the pre-Davidic covenant. Everyone remember that? And that's the establishment, that's the agreement between David and the nation of Israel, that David would be their shepherd. Everyone remember that? And then we went through the whole spiel on how shepherd works. Good. Well, this is, as a result of that pre-Davidic covenant, there's an official declaration by the narrator that David now is a king just like any other king after him would be and as kings before him would be. But David now is also highlighted by the narrator with a divine insight that God was with him. That's why he becomes greater and greater. Um, by the way, this reinforces, and we need to see this all the time, the king-to-king relationship. K-I-N-G capitalized versus K-I-N-G lowercase. But here's something important. While the first covenant, the pre-Davidic covenant, I guess you could say, <coughs> is between David and the nation, what's the significance of verse 11 in chapter 5? What's the significance? That's right. And that's twofold significant. Immediately, immediately, the reason that this is significant is it's the first time ever Israel, in the Bible, that is, 
is recognized by a foreign king. That is the first time ever that Israel was recognized by a foreign king. Saul never has international recognition. People knew he was king and people wanted to attack him because he was king, but no one respected Saul internationally. Do you see the difference between the two? They knew he was a king. They didn't respect him. But what do they do with David? They respect him. They want to help him. Does that make sense to everybody? That immediately sets David apart from Saul. Remember the historical background. The Israelites never could conquer. They never could get international fame, but they were supposed to get international fame because that was part of their purpose. They were supposed to become a what? Great nation. Never could happen. But all of a sudden, David comes and he does what no one else could do for the last 400 years, and then all of a sudden, the nation comes to him. The nations start to come to him. Does that make sense? And want to form an alliance with him. Kind of like Abraham in Genesis. Everyone with me? And that's big. That's really, really big. They want to establish his dynasty. But there's a bigger, bigger picture here. Not just a contrast between Saul and David, but it points to this. Mission accomplished by God. Because what was God trying to do this whole time? The world's hope is Genesis 3.15. That will be carried by Israel and fulfilled through the line of David. What does God need to then tell the nations? David is the line you are what? Looking for. It's not just that the nation of Israel needs to know that. Who else needs to know that? Everybody. Does that make sense to everybody? And so with this, what is that showing? Everyone's starting to realize this is no ordinary king. This is no ordinary king. The nations want to build his dynasty. They want to invest in him. Right? Because what are, they going to, what are they doing? They're not just saying, hey David, we want to form an alliance with you. We want to build your palace. We want to build your palace. Why? What's a palace? It's where you live. Right? It's like the White House. David, we want to put you on the throne because you're the man. We recognize that. Do you see that? It's not just a formal political alliance of you help us, we help you. That could be historically what's happening here, but what does the text say? It's more than that. The nations recognize David is the key, so they're investing in him. That's what's going on. Mission accomplished. The world knows Yahweh has assigned David to be the specific bearer now, not just the nation of Israel, but not just the tribe of Judah, the family of David will bear this promise now. He's the king. Questions? Okay. And do you understand why the text ends where it does? And David realized that the Lord has established him as king over Israel. Because now it's not just Israel saying it. Now it's not just because the military says it. Now it's not just because personal unification says it or that he has a great attitude. It's the world saying, you're the king. You're the king. And so David realizes. (laughs) And really, does David do very much throughout this whole chapters 1 through 5? I mean, does he like do a ton? No. Does he fight any of the battles, really? Not really. Does he... uh, 
All he does is really kills like three people and cries. And then he gets to become king. I mean, right? He cry, He's like, boo-hoo, you know, Ishbosheth, boo-hoo, Abner. And now I'm king. And die, Amalekite, and die, Rechav, and Ba'ana, and all right, you know, I'm there. Uh-huh. No, I feel that totally. Like, whenever we were, like, we had two different leaderships in the Marines. We had one leadership where the guy was from Brooklyn, he was a sergeant major, and he would go off on us. And he would, and I'll tell you what, even if you fell down a cliff, like someone kicked you, like, down a mountain or something, you got back up because he winked at you. And then the second guy was just terrible. And, and like, you could just tell he just started picking awesome people up and just sent him away because they wouldn't agree with what he said. And we didn't want to fight for this guy. I mean, we did for America, but it wasn't the same feeling. Like, the other guy, we built sandbags for days and not even worry about it because we had that upper echelon there that we respected and that we wanted to fight for. And there was just a radical difference. And you could see it just all throughout the unit, and, and especially in what we accomplished, too. Hmm. Massive difference. Yeah. So, I mean, this is God. This is God's providence, right? It's not like David's a genius, right? In fact, what do we use, what do we, what have we seen, and this will help you, give you a little jolting reminder, next page, what have you seen about David? What was, what's one of the major things you've seen? Besides him killing those guys, there's something else that comes up. His, look at, what was it, what is it? Chapter 5, verse like 14-ish, 13-ish. What does it say? His what? Wives. David is not the genius. Right? It, does David have character? Yes, he does have character. We know that. That's what makes him a person, a man after God's own heart. We know that. That's the first thing you learn, right? That's the most important thing. But even that's going to start to go downhill. And that's what the author, the narrator of 2 Samuel is emphasizing. David is not the key here. Right? David is not the key here. Who's the key? This guy. The capital K-I-N-G. He's making all of this happen. He's making it abundantly clear what he's going to do with David. Does this make sense to everybody? Because he's got it all mapped out. And it's a brilliant plan. Right? You just cannot ignore how brilliant it is. I mean, just the timing of everything and how it all fits together is just amazing. But David's got problems. David's got big problems. And he took notice. It's not just that he has concubines and wives. What did he do in verse 13? He what? He took more. He took more. It's like, David, what are you doing? I don't know what he... Well, I do know what he was doing. He was, why would, why would on, from a human level, you take more? Treaty, Right? Maybe he took a wife from Tyre. <laughs> Bad move. But anyway. Uh, or what? Lust. I guess that would be another option. Or what? If you have more kids, you're going to have a bigger dynasty that could survive. Do you see that? That's why, peop- that's why historically um, kings had many wives and concubines. Was to have lots of kids so that... If, if there was an attack and the royal and some people died in the royal house, you could potentially have survivors. Does this make sense to everybody? Did David need that? No. What has the text been saying all along? David, despite the fact of who you are and what you've done, God has secured 
your throne and made it so clear what it means, right? And how powerful it is. Why are you trusting yourself? Do you start to see the erosion here? Capital K-I-N-G, lowercase K-I-N-G. Do you start to see that a little bit? Is it all the way there yet? No. But once this erodes, David will lose his what? Ability to have integrity. Does that make sense? Remember the first question that we asked in chapter 1 was, David, will you take matters into your own hands? Or will you what? Trust God. Remember that? That was the original question. Will you respect the capital K-I-N-G and what he's doing, or will you just what? Do it by yourself. And if you do it by yourself, if you fall to the temptation of the Amalekite, you lost your personal integrity. Right? This is starting to disintegrate. Has it done it all the way yet? No. But what you're going to see is the first step to David's collapse is his sin with who? Bathsheba. David, you like a woman named Bathsheba. But what does the capital K-I-N-G say? What has he been saying all along? Do not multiply what? Women. You're never supposed to have her. And what does David do for the first time? Murders to what? To get her. This disintegrates. And remember how I said Why is chapter 1 the way it is? Because it's the most important thing, right? David as a person is what secures everything after that. So what do you start to see after David collapses personally? Everything else starts to collapse with him, right? And you have a coup. Well, actually, before you have a coup, you have Joab, who rebels against David and tries to get Absalom to do all these kinds of different things. That means David's no longer in control of the army, military. Do you see that? Remember what was the order? First order, personal, military. Then what? Unification, yes? Everyone remember that? Okay, so David fails as a person with Bathsheba and Uriah, yes? And that causes the collapse of the Military, which leads to a coup, which breaks what? National unification. It all goes away. The book of Samuel is built in parallel. This link is important. Do you see that now? And do you understand why those temptations are so critical and so early in Jesus' ministry? Because you have to prove he's the king. You have to prove that he's the right one. Does that make sense? That means you put him under a test that's harder than David's, that in fact is more, it's, it's the fundamental test of what people have in Genesis and in Exodus through the wilderness wanderings. <clears throat> through all that time, you put him through that test. He passes, he proves that he's the right king. And then what? You have the rest to follow. Does that make sense to everybody? This is the nature of what it means to be king. This is who Jesus is. This is his job description. He is the king who is destined to conquer, and by conquering, he will unify a nation which will in turn bless the world. That's his job. That's glory. Uh, And that's what we're studying. So, David's about to fail. 
you see it. Uh, here are the names who were born to him. And who's the, most, who's the guy who stands out to you the most? Hint, his name starts with an S, and it's not Shemuel or Shobab. Solomon. How did he get him? Through who? Who is Solomon's mommy? Bathsheba. She's included in this list because it was a mistake. It was a disaster. This is the fall of the Davidic house. It's built in. It's like, like I'll say about the, I'll say it's, it's like the ark, right? Poles included and like, like how I wish my son's toys were, batteries included. David is fall included. It's built into him. He can't escape it. He will always violate the law of the king. Jesus doesn't. That's what makes him good. Questions? Do you understand how this book is going to go? After, after chapter 7, basically. It all goes downhill from there. And it goes downhill exactly this way to show you this is what could have been if you had the really, if you really had the what? Right person. But it's not. It's not meant to be. Yeah? See, Christ accomplished those things in the same order. Uh, yeah, but these two things right here, they're not yet. They're still to be. In fact, <clears throat> those of you in Minor Prophets, you'll remember, right? Well, actually, you don't totally remember, but you know the military one. Lord, bring down the troops. That's a cry. Wait, do we have? Yeah, that, we covered this. That's a cry in Joel. And the Messiah comes down with the troops. They're called saviors altogether, and they are going to deliver. But what you have is a military conquest followed in Zechariah by a massive unification of the nation where all men, the nations, are blessed. And they all celebrate the same holidays, celebrating God's faithfulness to Israel, which also produces blessing for the world. It's found at the end of Zechariah. By the way, um, in the, at the end of Joel... Okay. So, you asked the question. It's your fault. So the, I'm just joking. It's, it's good. Because um, you're asking, well, how does this work out? Does this play? I mean, does this, does this pattern play through? Yes, it does. Um, at the end of Joel, which talks about the Messiah's military intervention okay, through the nation. Remember how I said that the Messiah is in Genesis 3, but he's also in Genesis 49, and like, you wash your garments in wine, remember that? And you drink so much milk, your teeth turn white. Everyone remember that? Joel, at the very end, in Joel chapter uh, 3 in English, 4 in Hebrew, what you have is, then the vines of Israel will be plentiful and the milk will be overflowing. Where do you have that? Why does he talk about vines and milk? You would think milk and honey, right? Like the promised land. But vines and milk? Where is this coming from? It's coming back to where? The only other time you have vines and milk put together, Genesis 49. What is the argument? Genesis 3, world has lost hope. We need the Messiah to have victory over Satan and restore the world. Genesis 49, he will do that. See, the line of Judah, one will come and he will restore the world because you have so many vines that you could use them to wash your clothes, right? And you have so much milk, you can use it to whiten your teeth. Everyone remember that. And Joel says, when Messiah comes and conquers, boom, the world will be restored just like Genesis 49 said. Does that make sense? It's all building. It's all consistent. And 
Joel follows the kind of the paradigm of <coughs> there will be a military conquest. In fact, that military conquest will be so big, God even calls all the nations to turn their plowshares into swords. Usually you hear it the other way around, right? Like, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. No. First, they do it the other way around. They beat their plowshares into swords. Why? Get, every, get everybody in battle. And remember, and remember, I said this was hilarious, right? Let the weak man say, I am strong. What song is that from, modern day? Give thanks, right? Let the weak say, I am strong. You guys remember that? Well, why are they saying that? They're not saying that to worship God. They're saying that to fight against him. Does that make sense? God's saying, get, pull together your entire army. You're like, oh no, what am I going to do now? <laughs> no, no, the weak are not strong. Don't sing that. <laughs> You're singing it with the rest of the apostates. You know, don't do that. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. Like I said, like deep and wide, you know, talking about Israel's sin like a fountain. Uh, just, I mean, we just take care of, I mean, who cares? No, I mean, you should care, but I think Minor Prophets also should have the title of all the, all the bad songs that we have, you know. Like, as the deer, it's like, oh no, why are, you, why, why are we doing this to ourselves? But anyway, um, it's okay, you can sing them. But that's where the phrase comes from, what the weak say, I'm strong, I'm a mighty man. And the idea is, hey, you need every man on the battlefield. So get, put some steroids into the weak guy and make him strong so that he can fight against God on the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? And it doesn't matter because God comes in and he kills everybody. And then he unifies and restores, unifies the nation of Israel and restores the world. Does that make sense to everybody? That's the ending of Joel. That shows that Yahweh is powerful. But to answer your question, yeah, OT has predicted this, NT has predicted this, and even the book of Revelation, I would say, shows that, right? What, is, what does our Lord come back on? A horse. Yeah! Yeah. White horse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't weak. He was strong in his weakness. Right. I know. You got it. So, this time on a white horse, and he comes down to conquer. Look at it that way, like, you know, going from a dog, this time now he's like, got the real deal, he's got the horse, like, he went from, he upgraded. Uh, I wouldn't say he exactly upgraded. Let me, let me put it this way. Donkey, kings did ride donkeys, but the key is that he, ride, he rode the donkey in humility. The donkey did show that he was a king, but he showed that he was a king, like a peaceable king. And a king, king that was of, because it says he was, he wrote it humble, right? That word humble. Actually, the word for humble there is the word afflicted. He wrote it afflicted in Zechariah 9.9. As opposed to Genesis 49.10 of writing it as a peaceable king who reigns. But in Revelation 19, he comes back on a horse for war. You don't ride donkeys to war. Okay? That's just dumb. <laughs> Okay, you only do that when you run out of horses. And even then, you probably just should surrender at that point. So the... Uh, oh, the, never mind. So the... Because there's a story about that, actually, in the Bible, but I don't have time to go there. So, uh, actually, it relates to Obadiah, for those of you in Minor Prophets. But the, the king rides now for war. That's the military, Yes. Do you see that? That's the military. And then what does he do? Well, then you have the, what's called the Millennial Kingdom in Revelation 20, which is the unification of all Israel and the blessing upon the world and the restraint on who? 
Who's bound for a thousand years? Satan. Fulfilled. See how that works? God has victory over Satan. And he proves it. So it all flows, it all fits together. It's just, it's just that now I've like sped up the process so that you can see pattern, 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 and you just go through it all the way through it, and it's easy, right? But to get that pattern it takes a lot of work, but I just kind of gave you the answer key to help you boost you. Okay, we got to hurry, because we've advanced like five verses. <coughs> so what did I say before? Two things. If you, if you follow this mangled mess... First, God using David provides hope. Everyone remember this? Provides hope. Because he's finally the conqueror. He's finally doing this thing. And there's power in the military conquest. Everyone remember that. That's the first thing. The hope factor. Okay? And we talked about that. This connection is the second thing. Alright? I didn't say that on accident. Because there is an epilogue that follows. There is an epilogue that follows. It's found in chapter 5 and in or the remainder of chapter 5 as well as chapter 6. And those two truths, David as conquering hero, military powerful, to provide hope for the nation and to advance God's plan. That's true. And that's going to be solidified in one story that is kind of the epilogue. Everyone know what an epilogue is? It's kind of like after the conclusion, you got kind of like the P.S., just remember this. And then in chapter 6, we'll talk about this. Just to reinforce in your mind what God has been doing and what God wants to do through David. So here we go. God's kingship through David. When the Philistines heard that they anointed King David over all Israel, they went out to seek David. Historical background here. David, if you remember, toward the end of Saul's life, lived in Philistia. Everyone remember that? He kind of hid out there and he lied about his exploits against the um, Judeans and in fact he was actually killing Amalekites and stuff like that and he lived in Ziklag. Everyone remember that? The Philistines believe that David is their puppet king. Does that make sense? Philistines think David is on our side. In fact, they thought he was so on their side that they were going to have David fight Saul. Everyone remember that? The Philistines think David is their puppet king. But what alerts them, and that's why providentially, right? And let's, let's show you a little bit of history here. That's why when David becomes king, who doesn't immediately attack him? The Philistines. They could have. Wouldn't it have been a perfect time? The nation's weak. They're struggling over, you know, it's kind of like who won the Italian Civil War? The Germans. You know that, right? It's kind of like, I hope no one here is really seriously committed to being an Italian. But when, when the Italians fought each other, what the Germans did is they're like, oh, good, you both are weak. We're going we're gonna to supply one side with one kind of weapon and another side with another kind of weapon, and we can do military tests on you while you're fighting each other. And we'll figure out who, which of us, which company in Germany has the best weapons. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see what Israel's doing? Israel's in the midst of a what? Civil war. Philistia wants their, their land. They want the territory. So what's easy? While they're fighting, you come in and kill 
both sides. Why didn't that happen? Because Philistia believes that David is their puppet king. So if David wins, which it looks like he's going to do, they'll get Israel what? Anyways, through a political maneuver. But then they find out that David uh, is now anointed king over Israel, and he's doing a lot of interesting things like changing his capital, teetering with the status quo, being like a king. And what do they start to realize? David is not our puppet. Right? David is not our puppet. And immediately, David goes down to the stronghold, to Mitsudah, which is probably the place of Masada. He goes to Masada. Okay. Tries to organize militarily there. And the Philistines gather around the valley of Rephaim. Anyone know where Rephaim is? Yeah. It's what we call the west, southwestern approach, yes? Goes this way. To Jerusalem. Normally, the Philistines, how do you want to attack? You attack from the, what? How do you attack? From the north. And Philistia did that. They always gathered at like Aphek area and crossed over Ebenezer and went south. Does that make sense? Because they're attacking from the north. This is what Philistia normally did. That's what they normally did. Does this make sense to everybody? This time they do this. Why are they doing this? No, I mean, otherwise they wouldn't be attacking, right? They have a diplomatic envoy. Why are they doing this? Why not do the normal way? Yeah, it doesn't matter, though. Saul knew the normal way. He got attacked the same way twice. So why not? They were in a hurry. Of course. Because every moment they delay, and they're, every moment they leave David in power, he's getting what? Stronger. So they have to take who out? Who are they wanting to take out? The whole nation? They just need to take out David. Do you see this? This is a direct decapitation strike right against the leader. Does this make sense to everybody? They don't have time to go up north and go down and fight a bunch of battles to get good positioning. They don't need to do that. They just need to kill David. There's another historical thing here that you need to understand. The Philistines, for most of the 300 years that Israel has been in existence, longer than our country has been around, no matter how you splice and dice, I guess, our opening years, um, they have been the thorn in Israel's side. Does that make sense? They have been the thorn in Israel's side. So David, what is his first move of action after he positions himself? What does he do? Ask the Lord. Very important. Why? Because it reinforces king over king, right? And remember, David has done this quite often. He did this in chapter 3. Where should I go up? Remember that? And, you know, they, uh, or chapter 2, rather, and God tells him, go up to Hebron, all these kind of things. David inquires of the Lord. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And David, and the Lord commands David to go. So David goes into Baal Peratzim, 
And you need to know that phrase. Ba'al Peratzim in verse 20. Very important phrase because there's going to be a parallel phrase to it. Why is it called Ba'al Peratzim? Why? Mm, not, not idols. Actually, this refers to the Lord. Read the text. What does it say? Uh, that's, that's true. That's a true statement, but that's not what the text says. Explain more. Oh, 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 I see. Uh, yeah, Paris does mean breach, but it's not it's not going here. What is Does it have to do with the water? The water is? Yeah. More. Yeah, but that's not why they named it. Baal means rain god, but Baal also means husband, and Baal also just means master. Because you call your husband your master, and then the master of all masters is Baal, the god. So Baal doesn't always have to mean, how to put it, Baal doesn't always have to mean the false god. Does that make sense to everybody? (coughs) What does verse 20 say? It's not hard. It's not a trick question. Don't come up with a theologically profound answer. Just read the text. The Lord what? Broke through. The word for broke through is peretz. Broke through. That's why it's Baal Peratzim. Master of the breakthroughs. Master of the conquest. That's why this place is called what it is. It's because... Yahweh breaks through. Not as opposed to who, by the way. Who would you normally think if David's fighting this battle and he's coming through? Who would you want to name this place after? David. But David doesn't name it that. David names it after who? Yahweh. King to king. Does that make sense to everybody? He gives glory to God. In fact, that's a very important theological point. Military victory for the king provides hope because it proves Yahweh is victorious. Does that make sense? What was the hope of the world? That Yahweh would have what? Victory. Yes? Okay. Next thing. They name it Baal Peratzim. Why is it Baal Peratzim? Because it's master of the breakthrough. Master. Okay. If you say you're the master soccer player or you're the master of this maneuver or something, what does that mean? You're the, you're the best as opposed to the Philistine gods, as opposed to any other Philistine, as opposed to any other Israelite, Yahweh is victorious. It gives honor to him as the ultimate God of the breakthrough. And there's a lot of drama here because uh, Baal Peretzim is located in what we call a wadi. It's like a, a canyon, okay? And um, there's a joke that Todd, Todd Bowen had with me once, and he shared it with a lot of students. And he says, I like to watch people come up canyons during rainy season so I can see a flood wash them away. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that sounds morbid. And you have to understand Todd's personality. He's a little bit morbid. But here's the thing. And I, usually, I told my students this once because they were wondering, well, why can't we go into this canyon? And I said, because there's a flood warning. 
And they said, well, well, what happens if we go in and the floods? I said, you basically, from the time you hear the sound, you have three seconds to get out. Or you're dead. They're like, oh, I guess we shouldn't go down. Yeah, that's right. You know, Because <laughs> that's the way it works. Once you hear the water rush, if it's flood, if it's a flash flood, you have three seconds to hook into the side and pray that you don't get swept out. Because usually canyons go like this. <clears throat> okay, I'll draw you a side map. Okay, here's the ground floor of the wadi, and then it just drops. And then there's like a cliff. And so the water goes out the side and floods a valley. Does that make sense? But if you don't hook in, the water's going to flush you out. And you're just going to fall into the valley and die. What is, what is God's powerful action here like? The flooding of a wadi. Do you see how powerful that is? I mean, these, these people are all in the valley and they all just start getting slaughtered as if what? In a flash flood. That's the picture. That's the power of God. David, by obeying God in a military conquest, shows and illustrates his powerful victory. That's what a king is supposed to do. That's why this is the epilogue. Does this make sense to everybody? But it's not just that. Verse 21. You know, here are the Philistines, and what do they have with them? What's implied in verse 21? What, did they, what, did they, what happened? They abandoned what? Their idols. So the Philistines, they got swords and spears. Well, what, what else do they have? Idols. You know? Like a Buddha, you know? There's their idol. Hey, that actually looks like one. For real. I've never drawn one so accurately. Okay, anyway, the... <coughs> You're like, that thing? That ugly thing? Yeah, it, I'm serious. Go, go, to, go, to, go online and look up idols. That, that really does look like one. Okay, anyway, so what's the point? God is supreme. Because who was, who, it wasn't just David fighting the Philistines. It wasn't just God through David fighting the Philistines. It was the Philistines thought who was fighting with them there they're idols. That's why they're carrying them, right? They're not just carrying them as, well, you know, I like my doll, you know, so I want to carry him with me. That's not the idea. It's their good luck charm, but a little bit more. Does that make sense to everybody? And what does David do with them? Cleanses the land. He takes them away. Gets rid of them. What does it mean to be king? It, this is what it means. It means you have a military conquest that proves the victory and hope of Yahweh. And not only that, you don't just kill the enemy, you eradicate what? Idolatry. False religion from the land. This is the nature of military conquest. Do you see, understand that military conquest here is much, much more than just, just fighting each other? That's not what David was just supposed to do. It was just to fight people. Does that make sense? He was to fight, to proclaim the victory of Yahweh, and to remove the enemy, and to, in fact, eradicate their false religion. That is the nature of Davidic conquest. That's what the true king is supposed to do. Does that make sense, everybody? That's why he's there. That's his job. That's the world's hope. Right? 
You don't just eradicate the serpent's seed as in his offspring, those who believe like he does, you eradicate who? The serpent himself. And that's the proof of what David's doing here. Does this make sense to everybody? Do you understand how this all connects? Does this make sense to everybody? Good. Yeah. Maybe six months, not long. Could be a year, two. So David already started going to Empire in six months. Yeah, yeah. What well, this is, I mean, here, I mean, some people would disagree with me on that, and that's okay. I don't mind. I, I'd be happy to be wrong, you know, if I knew what the truth was. Um, but I view that all of these events prior to Bathsheba happened, say, within the first twenty years. So a lot of this stuff, I mean. You've got to compact it a little bit to make that work. Other people believe that Bathsheba happened, say, in the last like five years of David's life or something like that. And you're like, so then you have a lot more time to work with. Does that make sense? And we, and hey, I understand where they're coming from, and they're good men. They're conservative people. It's not like they're liberals playing with the text or something. They have archaeological historical concerns, but I prefer to kind of neatly cut in the middle because I think that's what Second Samuel's doing and yeah. Mm-hmm. How did they do that? Well, they would just argue that this is just a big overarching picture. Yeah, I even argue that, right? Solomon's not born yet, technically. He's not born till like chapter 10, 11, 12. So <laughs> this is just kind of a big overarching problem that the author's putting out. Okay? The Philistines once again have a second battle. You know, If you can't try once, maybe we can win the second time. God assigns a new strategy, and once again it shows that he's in control. That relationship is reinforced once again. And this time, it's not just the intensity of military uh, striking as giving God glory and crushing the enemies and everything. But what did I say? After military action comes what? Political unification. Everyone see that? Okay, watch this. So, you know, you hear the sound of the marching on the tops of the balsam trees. Strike out. God will strike the Philistines. David does so. And then what happens? They conquer from where? From Geba to, what does the text say? To Gezer. And you're like, what, is, what does that mean? Mikmash Geba. Remember where <clears throat> Jonathan, you know, Saul's son, killed a bunch of Philistines climbing up the rocks? Everyone remember that? That was at Geba. Uh, do, you, do you remember me talking about CBP, Central Benjamin Plateau? Do you remember that? That's like, if you conquer that, you conquer everything, right? Geba is on the far eastern hinge, far eastern border of CBP. Okay. Okay? But CVP is connected to another body called the Shvela. Shvela is the buffer zone. So does that make sense? So you have buffer zone, which is a buffer zone between Israel and Philistia. Does this make sense? And then you have CVP. You have to cross through the buffer zone to get to CVP. Does this make sense to everybody? So if I'm like drawing a big map and Jesus, half of Jesus is in the med, okay? And here, the Shvela kind of starts here and goes down like this. Does this make sense to everybody? And the Philistines are over here 
and they're trying, and the way they're going to cut across is through here. Does this make sense? Geba, Gezer, is on the border of the buffer zone in Philistia. Does this make sense to everybody? So what is the idea? They've c captured CBP, a big chunk of the buffer zone as well. Do you see that? And they've officially then cut off the Philistines from ever touching what? CBP again. Does this make sense to everybody? Political unification. This is our land. It's not the Philistines' land. It's our land. Does that make sense? He unifies the nation by establishing real boundaries. Yeah? Why didn't David just go all the way over and just completely wipe out the Philistines? Not yet. Not yet. There will be a time for that. But that will be a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So that's why it's after, mentioned after chapter 7. Here, we just need to understand what it means that God is pointing to David, right? Which means this, both intensive and comprehensive, this is a powerful king. This is the king, the man of the hour. Does this make sense to everybody? Good. Great question, by the way. So, next phrase, or not next phrase, next page. Good. We're in, we're in Samuel 6, and we understand hope. This starts to make sense. Um, now we're here. Capital K-I-N-G, lowercase K-I-N-G. That's the second thing you have to understand. David gathers again all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 people. And he goes up to Baal Le Yehuda, Baal, Baal Judah in order to bring up the ark. And you think, hey, that's cool. He kind of gathers the troops again, just like he gathered them before. But what's missing here? David asked God. This is exactly what's missing. Every other time, David's gathered, and then he's asked God permission to do something. And in chapter 6, he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. King versus king. This is a hint of what is to come, and this is also an important reminder that this relationship is absolutely critical. By the way, as way of background here, you could put this in context and overview. Why does David want to bring the ark to Jerusalem? Okay, that's definitely one, to make a spiritual capital the same as a political capital, absolutely, but there's something else. That's true. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a, 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 bless, a, mag, a blessing magnet, I guess you could say, and, and yeah, kind of like a good luck charm, but better and real and not luck. Yeah, that's true, but there's something more than that. There's a lot of good reasons, but there's a bad one. That's a good one. Protect it, sure. Okay. What does the ark represent? God's presence. And um, 
if you move God's presence to your capital, what does it show? God is? Yeah, he's on your side. He, he proves, it proves that you're the king by divine right. And is David the king by divine right? Yeah. But what has David done now? He didn't consult the Lord first, and so he actually jumps the gun. Wait for God to make you declare that for you, because he's been declaring it for you all along. David lost his what? Patience. Do you see that? Does that make sense to everybody? David lost his patience. Exactly. Remember what was what made him the right man for the job to begin with, because he said. I'm not going to take it into my own hands to become king. Remember that? He said that over and over and over and over and over again. And then hear what happens. He takes it into his own hands. He takes it into his own hands. Yes? No. Because I think at this moment, David has made a mistake. David learns his lesson and then what signals the transition is that God blesses, as opposed to what? Curses. So when the curse is over, you're like, okay, I think I'm in the clear, and then you can move forward. That's the signal. But David's already messed it up. David's messed up big time, because he didn't honor the capital K-I-N-G. And do you understand now why the ark is described like this? Bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. What is it emphasizing? Don't you understand what you're handling? You're handling who? The Almighty King. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you see the imagery here? Whose name is untouchable, whose essence is not like your own. David, you are man. That's, your, that's the name, essence of who you are. But God has a totally different name than you. What are you doing? Carting God's ark as if you can push God around. Do you see how that works? It's like, okay, we're going to move God over here so that he can serve my purposes. That's what David is saying. Does that make sense? That is a total disruption of this relationship. Are you with me? On top of that, God puts the ark on what? Uh, not just a cart, a what? A new cart. And it says it twice, new cart, you know? Well, yeah. yeah, they would do that because the last time that happened, you know, God told them, hey, your, your simple fingers are worse on it than uh, the ground I created, which is still good, I, I guess. Yeah, 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 no. They would put it on a cart, but remember my joke? I want my son's toys to have what? Batteries included, right? What does the ark have? Poles included. The ark was supposed to, according to Numbers 4, be carried on poles. Not by a what? Cart. Not even a what? New cart. You know, that's, this is a total joke on David. David is trying to... Why would David want it on a cart? Faster, of course. You know how long it's going to take to carry it on foot? A lot, you know, okay, much longer than on a cart. Let's just put it that way. I don't know how fast they were going, but okay, let's say from Kiryat Yarim to Jerusalem, it's about a 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive with traffic. 
Uh, Jericho to that is about eight hours. So I'd say it's a good, because you're walking uphill and the paths aren't straight and you don't have a modern highway to help you. Say like a good six hour walk. David doesn't have time for that. Let's get, let's get God in there quick so that I can become what? King. And I'll put him on a new cart. Not even an old cart. It's a cart specially designed for the ark. Yes? New cart. doesn't matter if it's a new cart. And so they're carrying it down. Oh, by the way, <coughs> uh, Ibex campus's claim to fame is that we are in this area. All right? Kiryat Ye'arim is uh, modern-day Abu Ghosh, which is right next to the Ibex campus. So you can... I've slept where the ark sat. Maybe. I mean, because, I mean, I was... They booted me out of... One time they didn't have enough hotel space for me when I was visiting, so they're like, here, you're going to sleep in a, a monastery commemorating the place of the ark. And I slept there, and I became holier. Uh-huh. <laughs> Could I tell that to a church elder? It's like, oh, we need to build a new, bigger church now. I'm saying, hey, I mean, could I point to this example and say, hey, you didn't even really ask God or the congregation in prayer. You, you just want to build a bigger building. But even though it's massive, that doesn't mean anything if the Lord doesn't dwell in it. Uh, there could be a point of analogy. I wouldn't necessarily go to this passage first, but it does point out a very important point, which is what? God is still our king. You don't just do things because you think it's a good idea. Right? You have to do it. Be- and you definitely don't do it to boost your ego, which sometimes buildings can become, right? And I'm not saying everybody who builds a new building, right, has a big ego. That's not my point. My point is, sometimes we do, we want a big church and we want a big building. And why? For me. So I look good. So at a pastor's conference, I can say, I grew my church from 50 to 5 million. Take that. You know, and I got a new book coming out and you better buy it. And, you know, here are the 10 steps to church growth, you know. Uh, <clears throat> pride. And God says, I don't tolerate that. I don't tolerate that. So there is, do you see how you can use it accurately and inaccurately? Yeah, that, something on those lines I think would be biblical. God is king. This is the theology of what it means that God is capital K-I-N-G. And everyone, David and all, must acknowledge that sovereignty. Yeah, great question. Um, so they put on a new card, and what happens? I mean, look, they're celebrating, but God's point is, it doesn't matter if you celebrate, it's still what? Wrong. So what happens? The cart tips, and Uzzah what? Touches it, and then he what? He dies. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down. And what did David call that place? Perez Uzzah, which is like what? Baal Perazim. What was Baal Perazim? Master of the breakthrough. Remember that? And that was Yahweh against his enemies, the Philistines, yes? But what's the irony? God didn't just break out against the Philistines. Now he's breaking against who? Israel, you disobey me, you're just like who? The Philistines to me. Those who are under the king, the capital K-I-N-G, 
are those who are loyal to him. Otherwise, you're his enemy. Get out. Do you understand what David has now become? Just like God's enemy. You break rank. You break this relationship. You're gone. And I think David was very angry, not at God, but at because of the whole event and what it said. What it, whose fault was it that Uzzah died? David's. Because he was selfish. Because he was prideful. Because he did things with impatience in his own timing. And was God right to kill Uzzah? Yeah. But it was David's fault. It won't be the first time that David has somebody killed because of his own pride. But at least this one's more indirect. Verse 9. So David was what? <clears throat> Afraid. And that's exactly what he should have been the whole time. Right? Because when you fear, it emphasizes your lowliness versus the other entity's greatness and superiority. That is what David should have had this entire time. That's what God was trying to put in David. You may be a king, David, and you may be used by me to provide hope and all these glorious things and have victory and and show my grandeur and, and, and conquer and unify the land. That's all good. But you have to fear me. Otherwise, as a king, you will fail. So David abandons the task of moving the ark and the ark stays with Obed-Edom, who is from the region of, who is a Gittite, but it seems like he's also a Levite. Cross-reference 1 Chronicles 15, 16 through 18. And it stays there for three months. Okay, what time do we get out of here? 35? Okay, good, we're going to make it. <coughs> Next page. Next page. This is where the transition occurs. David is the, the ark, which originally, what, what's the last thing the ark has done, really? Somebody touched it and they, they died. He died. So it's associated with judgment and curse right now. Does that make sense to everybody? And then all of a sudden, <coughs> Obed the Edomite is like winning the lottery. You know, he's getting blessed. And so David knows God's wrath has subsided. And so he brings up the ark of God from the house of Edom with gladness. This is what he does. Notice what he does. That when the bearers of the ark, those are Levites who what? Carry the ark now. Just like God said. See, David had violated God on so many different levels. He had bossed him around, so to speak, done what he wanted instead of God, what God wanted, put him into places where God had no intention of going at the moment. Now it's different. He wanted it fast, but what does he do now? After six steps, he stops and offers a an offering. An ox and a fatling. Probably, uh, you know, an ox and a fatling represent the offering for either priest or nation. 
Take your pick. Priest or nation. When the nation committed a sin, you sacrificed an ox. When a priest committed a sin, you did the same thing because the priest represented the nation. What is David trying to emphasize? I want to keep this whole thing what? Pure. Holy. Because I now understand I really have to submit to this king. And as opposed to moving fast, which was what an cart would do, he moves what? Slow. And in fact, he moves methodically slow. Why six paces? Say it again. Closer. What do you... What, what? Rest on the seventh. Yes, the Sabbath. So six days you'll work. One, two, three, four, five, six. And then to honor God exactly how it's supposed to be symbolized on the Sabbath, you rest on the seventh pace. Does this make sense to everybody? He's, everything is methodical here. It's exhaustive. And at this moment, when David finally starts to honor the king as the capital, K-I-N-G, remember what has happened before? When David honors God as king, when David honors God as king, David starts to act like a what? King. And here, he is at one time, the, probably one of the closest moments he can be to being what the true king ought to be. Because he is dancing and leading worship like a priest should, wearing what? A linen ephod. Which is what the what? Which is what? Priest garments. He is at the closest moment to being king priest like Melchizedek. And you start to see as he's getting closer to Jerusalem, knowing what Jerusalem stands for, its connections with Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, does this all start to make sense to everybody? Is he a priest? No, but he sure looks like one. And ironically, as. Remember? When, when David tries to become king by subverting his relationship with the K, capital K-I-N-G, he becomes most unkingly. But when he actually submits to God as king, that's when he becomes closest to the nature of what king should be. And this is played out even further. Here he is, so close to being king. And what happens? Michal, his wife, looks out, who's a daughter of Saul, and, says, and sees him dancing, and what happens? She she despises him. David brings in, has a national festival in honor of this, gives people like a, a fig cake and burns a burnt offering and a peace offering. By the way, burnt offering, peace offering, can't miss this. Burnt offering is dedication. That's what burnt offerings are used to communicate. Dedication. Peace offerings are meant to show fellowship. What is David doing? He's saying, I'm bringing God, or God is finally allowing me to bring him into this city so that we as a nation can now what? Be dedicated to God and have what? Fellowship with Him. Does this make sense to everybody? David is unifying the nation with God, just like a what would do? Priest. Just like a priest would do. He's at the closest moment now to being what a king, true king ought to be. And he gives, he gives everyone joy. The nation is unified because... Um, both to men and to women, he gives bread and dates and one raisin, you know, a cake of raisins and all this kind of stuff. That's what they do, and all the people go back to their home. This is the joy of a nation unified under one king to God. Does this make sense to everybody? Yeah. Yeah, that's why I said this is the closest he's ever. Yeah, but David's not officially acting as a priest. He's just close. 
He just looks close. Let me, let, me, let me show the difference. If you did what a priest did, you're out. Right? But David doesn't do what a priest does. He initiates it, he guides it, he leads it, but he doesn't do it. He gets close. And all of a sudden, you start to realize why that's... Why can't he be close? Because he's leading the ark, which is inherently, even though tied with kingship, it's who, who carried those things? The Levites, those who assist the priests. It's a priestly activity. And so what happens is David becomes closest to the priest at this point, but he never assumes the role. But that shows you where the trajectory of kingship is heading. Does that make sense? And why David starts to say, you, if the Messiah has to be from the order of Melchizedek, because he's got to be both king and priest. Does that make sense to everybody? Michal comes in, or he comes, David comes home, Michal greets him, and notice the characterization on Michal, daughter of Saul, over and over and over again, daughter of Saul. Why is it emphasizing she's the daughter of Saul now? Because this is the last vestige of Saulite opposition. This is the last vestige of Saulite opposition. Remember what I said before? David marries or kind of rejoins with Michal because, because it shows that he's the legitimate heir to the throne, yes? But then you all raise the right problem, which is this. Wait, I thought David was supposed to be a new line, right? That's what everyone said. Indeed. What happens to Michal? You will never have children. In other words, from now on, the, Saul, the line of Saul will what? Stop. It's over for you. And now, Michal was kind of like this booster rocket to get David in position, and now God is getting rid of her. And now the Davidic dynasty stands as a what? New dynasty. David, when he tried to be king over the capital K-I-N-G, couldn't make it. But when he actually submitted himself to God, God did what he wanted him to do and more in his providence. That's what we see in chapter 6. And all of this now will be codified next time when we meet with the Davidic Covenant in chapter 7.